Um, all right, well, this morning I am going to continue with that message that I began last week called the altar principle. How many of you, because we had a number of people that weren't here last week, how many of you have not had a chance to hear last week's message, the altar principle, part one? Oh, wow, most of you guys, okay. See. Joel's all right, you were in Massachusetts, I think, right? Yeah. With Jesse, that's even worse. <laughs> the altar principle, let me just make a comment before we get started on this. You know, uh, many, many years ago, certainly hundreds, and, and uh, you, if you go back to the beginning of the New Testament church, and certainly back in the Old Testament, probably the most, if not one of the most, sacred and important items connected to the worship of God was what we call the altar. And yet today, the very concept of the altar has been set aside, it's almost forgotten. If you ask Christians today, name me five, six, seven, maybe ten, the most important things to the Christian faith, they'll probably mention the Bible, um, worship, um, preaching, uh, if you ask them the name activities, you could probably go, and it might be 10 or 20 before somebody thinks the altar. Um, I think with the modern design of churches, and I've always lamented that we've never built, you know, the kneeling kind of, back in the old days we always had to, remember? Praise the Lord, don't mean to be looking at you guys back there. But, um, you know, back in, the old, back in the old days when I first got saved, uh, every church had an altar. And man, I'll tell you, there were always people either before or after church or sometime during the service up there praying, calling out on God, seeking God, other people around them praying. We don't have altars anymore. We have sound stages. We've replaced the altar and the principle of the altar with music or with some other kind of information. And I, this message is not about complaining, but I just want to get your attention um, for you to realize that the altar... And what the altar represents is not an optional furnishing to the church. It is central. It is so central. And the hour that we live in where everything that is important and central to the body of Christ is under attack. And if we don't recoup some of these essential things, especially the altar and the altar principle, we're not going to overcome, much less survive, the assault that we're currently under. So the altar principle is absolutely essential. Last week I shared about the heavenly altar. This morning I want to share about the earthly altar. Let me open up with three scriptures. Uh, Matthew 23, 19. Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says to them, For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? And then in Hebrews 13.10, the writer says, We have an altar from which those who serve and worship in the tabernacle have no right to eat. And finally, in Revelation chapter 9, it says, The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and from the horns of the golden altar, which stands before God, I heard a solitary voice. Now, if you take just these three verses and just 
put them together and think about think about what the Bible says about the altar. You'll notice by these verses that there's a place. It's a physical place called the altar where the business between heaven and earth is transacted. And there's three things that these three verses bring out, three simple points, and um, let me just share them with you, just kind of as a focus. Number one, the altar has the power to make the things that are offered upon it sacred possessions of God. Number two, the right to use the altar comes from God. God is the one who gives the right to use the altar. Number three, God has an altar called the golden altar in the book of Revelation that sits before his throne. Now, from a conceptual standpoint, we could think about the altar as God's phone system. Uh, and if there's going to be any talking, texting, or file sharing, it's done through the altar. God shares, hears, receives, communes, communicates between the altar in heaven and its extensions upon the earth. God's altar, God's altar is not governed by religious formalities, by stringent moralism, or any of those things that are good, useful, they're not what comprise and govern the altar. God's altar is governed by humility, honesty, and obedience. The word altar itself has very specific definition in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. It simply means the place. Everyone say place. Because I want you to get, because we're going to be talking about the physical altar upon the earth, the earthly altar. I want you to get the idea of physical, physicality. I want you to get that in your mind. As Christians today, we have a tendency to be overly abstract and ethereal. Too much of our Christianity goes on between these two points, in our own head and in our own heart. Now, coming to God without our heart, worshiping him without as Jesus said, bringing your whole body, soul, and spirit. But notice he did say body. But being too mental is dangerous, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments. But I want you to understand that the altar is built by the character of God. God's character characterizes, builds, if you were, the altar. And the whole purpose of the altar principle is to make us like him. By coming to him through an altar, through the altar, we are confronted, we are transformed, his influence molds and impacts our life so that we can come under his influence, under his authority, and leave that altar and go out into the world, and he can influence the world because we've allowed him to influence us. When we bypass the altar, and we, we don't have an altar relationship with Jesus, we're simply people of the world who are claiming a salvation by grace, but we lack the power of impact. When you read the Bible, both of the Old and New Testament, 
When God moved through altars, very powerful things took place. When you read the book of Revelation, most of the activity in heaven revolves around the altar. The verses of the book of Revelation say, and then an, el an angel came out of the altar. And then an angel did this at the altar. And so it is the centerpiece of activity related to God moving in the earth. And so for that reason, <clears throat> the altar, and think of it this way, the altar of God simultaneously exists in two locations. One is in heaven before the throne of God, but it has extensions in the earth and it simultaneously exists in heaven and in the various places where we meet with God at our altar. It could be the front of a church. It could be your reading chair in the morning where you do your devotionals. And uh, it could be really, it doesn't have to be a special place. It could be wherever the conditions of approaching Jesus, of coming to him, where that regularly takes place. But there is an, an essential physicalness, regularity about approaching the altar that keeps it from just being imaginary and us having a relationship with the Lord that we imagine is more than it <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> actually is. So the earthly altar accesses the heavenly altar. I shared last week about the heavenly altar because <coughs> excuse me, I wanted you to understand that when we kneel at our altar, sit at our altar, stand at our altar, and call upon the Lord, there's a phone booth in heaven. I hope that doesn't trivialize it in your mind, but you, on the other end, God is there at his altar, ready to do business. There needs to be altars in your life. I hope you have altars in your life. I hope you have an altar that you go to. Some people live by the woods and have a place that they go out to and they get alone and get with God. The Bible talks about Jesus used the altar of the wilderness or the hills. He would go out and be with the Lord. I hope you have altars where you and Jesus have encounters in your life because you must have those altars in order for Jesus' authority to flow effectively through your life. Christianity isn't built around coming to church. Christianity is built about your relationship with God's altars. And when you come to Jesus' altar, that's when he cleanses you of sin. That's when he removes the guilt and frees you to be able to answer his call and run the race that he sets before you and know what his will is for your life. I shared with you last week, and I'll share it again out of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the temple and he's praying, probably like many of us do, going to church. It's just another Sunday. We really don't expect anything to happen. We're just there doing our religious thing. And all of a sudden, God showed up, and Isaiah was startled. And the first thing that happened when God showed up was that Isaiah said, oh my God, I'm finished. I'm finished because I am a man. This is a prophet of God, Isaiah. I am a man of filthy lips. My language is filthy. And I live among a people of filthy lips. 
Imagine that. I guarantee you when he went into the temple that day, when he went to church, he wasn't thinking, I'm in sin. He wasn't thinking that my language is offensive to God. He was thinking, I'm fine, and I'm going to go pay my respects to God. And all of a sudden, God shows up, and what's the first thing that happens? See, the effect, the impact of an altar is it has this kind of piercing light that just goes right through you, and all of a sudden, you see things, beginning with yourself, as they really are. You can see why altars are so important. Hallelujah. And so in Isaiah 6, 5 through 8, he's there. God shows up. He says, oh, my God, I'm, I'm undone because uh, I, have, I have seen the king and I'm not right with God. And the Bible says, and then an angel took a coal off of the altar with a pair of tongs, touched the prophet's lips, and said, there, this coal from the altar has purified you, now you're ready. And he said, then I heard a voice, and God said, who will go for us? Let me just read it to you. I heard a voice, the Lord was asking, who shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will I send to Clearwater? Who will I send to Tampa Bay? Who can go for me? Who will represent me? And the man that said, flee from me, I'm, I'm improper, I'm not right, I'm sinful, I'm not appropriate, I'm not ready. Now jumps up and says, here I am, send me. Amen. And God sent him. The altar and the coal off that altar. You need altars in your life. Can you say amen? amen. <clears throat> what makes an earthly altar holy? What makes it holy? Holy meaning that it is separated unto God, untampered, undefiled. God moves upon it freely without restriction. That's what holiness really boils down to. Heaven recognizes holiness. It doesn't matter if other people don't recognize holiness. It's not the standards that the church lays out or people in your group or your club or your family, or your friends, but it's the standard that heaven lays out that determines what is holy. The Bible says, for I am holy, be holy. It didn't say, my religious organization is holy. It said, I am holy, so be like me, so that I can move freely. So what makes an earthly altar holy? Well, it's not the place, but it's the presence. The place doesn't make it holy. The presence makes it holy. I assure you that the ground that Moses stepped onto in the Midian desert, when God said, remove your feet, your shoes <laughs> from your feet, for the ground that you stand on is holy ground. I assure you it wasn't that particular patch of sand. It was the presence of God. And when that encounter was over and the Spirit of God lifted, that sand was just plain old sinner sand again. Nothing holy about it. It's the presence and the activity, the connection, the fellowship. That's what makes an altar holy. That's why churches have always misled people by creating shrines, holy locations. Because if at some point in history there was a 
meeting, a confrontation with God and some person or some people at that location, it ended when they left. It ended when God's spirit went. God is very translocal. He created you with two feet for a reason. We move around. God moves. Can you say amen? amen. So it's good to have a, an altar that you can build a life habit around. But it's not the location. It's the presence of God. God hears and sees the sincerity of your heart, the hunger, the thirst, the willingness when you go into that prayer closet, that altar, wherever it may be. I would like to recommend to you that I believe we need to sanctify this altar area in the front of the church. We ought to come together and pray and let you pray and say, Father, we declare before you we will be honest when we step onto this ground. We will humble ourselves when we step onto this ground. We will hold on to nothing when we step out of it. You can sanctify a place by intending to meet and be honest and obedient with God. You can set apart a place and say, this is set apart. When I step here, this is what I am going to do. So what makes the altar holy is the presence of God in that altar. And so really, earthly altars are more events than they are locations. It's your approach that makes it an altar. The holiness isn't waiting there for you to step into the magic booth. The holiness is there because your approach in the right spirit through the offering of Jesus Christ. When you come, your approach is what makes an altar holy. And God chooses to meet with you. Can you say amen? amen. So let me say to you, remember Jesus said, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Remember towards the end of his ministry, he said again, is anyone thirsty? Come to me. Approaching Jesus must be physical as well as mental. We have neglected the physical aspect of coming to Jesus. And let me make a case for this. Because the earthly altar is an extension of God's heavenly altar, it must be made holy by the blood of Jesus and the sincere and obedient heart of the person who wants to approach God at that place. And if we try to enter or approach that altar, that earthly altar, with an unholy heart, you can bring sin if you come ready to repent. If you come saying, Lord, search me, as David did, I'm probably wrong and not even aware of it. God knows that. God knew it when he said, forgive them. They know not what they do. But to assume, to presume that we're just, because we tuck a Bible under our arm or we parrot a prayer that we're all of a sudden made clean is absurd and it's dangerous. We must approach God and that's both physical as well as mental and spiritual. And so that 
that altar has to involve a physical approach. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest you need is not just mental, it's physical. The healing we need oftentimes is physical. It is the physical world and its realities and the struggles that you have that affect you mentally and emotionally. You're under care and anxiety because of physical things that have been bearing upon you. And that's why we need to step out when we come to the Lord. Lamentations 2.7 says, The Lord has scorned, rejected, and cast off his altar. I found that verse quite shocking. Because God who says, make an altar and come to me. And when you look at Abraham, you look at Jacob, you look at the men of the Old Testament who built altars at places where they met God. Tremendous things happened in those meetings and at those places. And those altars were a memorial to what happened in that place. But for God to say, I have scorned, rejected, and cast off my altar. Why would God say that? God says it because of what we do when we go into the altar of God. How we come with a rigid resistance, ready to say prayers without praying, ready to make promises we have no intention of truly working out with God to have the grace to change those things. And God says the insincerity, the disobedience, the hypocrisy has made me despise my altars. So God wants to love that altar area. We have to come, remember the altar was designed and built by the character of God. And to, to be one with that altar, to be one with him, we must come in the characteristics that make our Heavenly Father happy and pleased. Truly, earthly altars are not furnished with crosses and candles and pictures. They're furnished with the hearts that are disciplined by obedience to God's word to stay open to him. You can have sinned like David sinned, but come to God as he did in Psalm 51 and and say, Lord, I break my heart before you. God read that heart. He knew the intentions. But David did go. He didn't just lay on his bed and have those thoughts before God. He got up and went, fasted for seven days and seven nights and put himself in the temple, locked the door, said, don't anybody bother me. And he was in there crying out to God. Very physical, very physical with his heart. Praise the Lord. Listen to what the psalmist says in the 26th Psalm. I do not associate with deceitful men or consort with those who are dishonest. I hate the mob of evil men, and I do not associate with the wicked. I maintain a pure lifestyle so that I can appear before your altar, O Lord, to give you thanks and to tell about all of your amazing deeds. Now that may come from the Old Testament, but boy, that is a New Testament prayer. I keep myself unpolluted from the world for a reason. You sometimes Christians think, I have to stay unpolluted from the world because I have to maintain my Christian standards. That's going to get old fast. 
And it's not a strong enough defense to withstand the temptations of the flesh or of Satan, because eventually you're going to give in. The standards of Christianity, the rules, however you want to think of them, are not enough to stem the tide against the temptation to be holy unto the Lord. It's love for communion with God. It is the ambition to go into the altar and connect with the heavenly altar before the throne of God. That is where the motivation comes from that makes the earthly altar sacred and holy. I do not associate with these things so that I can come into your altar, give you thanks, and then leave and tell of your amazing deeds. I told you I wanted to make a case for a physical, why our altar should be physical. So here it is. A physical earthly altar keeps us from the error of letting our prayer life sink into mental ascent. It helps your prayers escape the echo chambers of your own mind, having to formulate them into words and push them out through your lips. Does something. It does something. Hallelujah. Prayer that's never more than thoughts within your own head. Now, don't get me wrong. I can't go two different directions at the same time. I've got to take this one direction. I hope you know that there's other directions applied to other circumstances. But I'm going to tell you right now. Prayer that is never more, that never becomes more than just thoughts within your own head leaves you subject to self-delusion. Because in your own head, you can feel conviction, but will never really experience the confrontation of the Holy Spirit who has the power to forgive, release, and refresh you. You've got to cough that chicken bone up. You know what I'm talking about? You've got to get it out. And as I shared with you last week, God's not looking for majestic religious language at the altar. Your language doesn't have to be religious. It doesn't have to sound fantastic. But you need to get it out. You need to speak out before God. Amen. Hallelujah. The worshiper who serves only at the altar of their own heart will remain, and I stress that word remain, stalled out at a level of satisfaction with their own life. Many Christians have leveled off. And I know it's popular. Everyone's running around parroting the same thing. We need to level up. We're going to level up. And I think 50% of the time they have no idea what they're talking about. Claiming we're going to level up. You don't level up because you have culturally ascended above some other person. The fact of the matter is that so many Christians have leveled off. They're at a level, they're satisfied, their life is fairly full, and they're there. And unless something happens, unless they engage with an altar and the fire of God falls, they're not going to go one step further than where they're at. See, altars are where encounter takes place. But when your altar is always only in your own head, and your prayers are always in your own mind, 
you will reach a level of satisfaction with yourself because that's what your mind is trained to do. Your mind may criticize you, but it's going to stick a pacifier in your mouth and make you satisfied with where you're at. And so many Christians are, remain stalled out at a level of satisfaction. Their desires for more of God may rise from time to time, only to fall back under the weight of a life that is just too full of itself to make room for real change with God. Now that's the kind of thought that will meet you at the altar. Hallelujah. The altar's where spring cleaning takes place. You know spring cleaning. It's about that time of year, isn't it? The altar's where we throw out the old and musty. Why? Because we're making room for the fresh and the new. The person whose prayer life is only in their head will never throw anything out. Because your mind is always going to be in conflict with your head is not an altar, it's an echo chamber. And it's good to think before you pray. But it's not good to just think and then think you've prayed. Jesus is the true New Testament altar. Really, when it comes down to it, Jesus Christ himself is the New Testament altar. It is upon him, upon his sacrifice, upon his giving his life to us, that the altar with all of the character of God, exists. He stands knocking at the door of our heart, requiring both spiritual and physical response. That's why, by the way, the Lord's Supper, communion. Think about it. How many times have you taken that bread and taken that cup and saying, well, what's the purpose in this? It it's uncomfortable. The communion table is oftentimes uncomfortable. Why? Because it's not the first time you've thought about, I need forgiveness. But something about taking that bread and taking that cup confronts you. And you have to think about what is significant and what is real and where you're really at. So communion is a spiritual communion through a physical act of prayer. When Jesus said, come to me, he meant come. Do you have a place where you go to him? That's what I'm saying to you this morning. The covenant table, the, the communion table, is a table of covenant exchange. I wish I had the time to talk a little bit about the blood covenant. I haven't, talked, haven't preached on it or taught on it in a couple of years, but I, we've got lots of material on it. But for those that know, our relationship with God is a blood covenant producing our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal I Am, the God of eternity, who made bare his arm to save us when there was no intercessor. But long before Jesus came, he made a covenant with Abraham, supported it through Moses, talked about it, built it up through the prophets, when Jesus came, he came as an answer to the blood covenant. When, when God told Abraham to go up on Mount Moriah 
and sacrifice his only son. After God had already told him, it is through your son that, the, that great nations will come forth, multitudes, and from those nations will come your seed, the Savior, who will save the world from their sins. So he knew Isaac is the one, but God said, I want you to sacrifice him. How could God want me to sacrifice my son when he has associated these promises with him? And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he just finally brought himself mentally to the place where he said, God must have plans to raise him up. I'm going to sacrifice him and God's going to raise him. So God coaxed a man into relationship with him. He gets him to go up this mountain. He gets him to sacrifice the promise that God made to him. Put it all on the altar would be a way of saying it. And Abraham goes up there and just as he's about to drop the knife, God comes down and says, stop, I know that you truly love and believe me. But I have a sacrifice. You need a better son. Isaac's not going to do it. I've got it. I have a sacrifice. He said, but in the meantime, go ahead and take that sheep over there. Sacrifice the sheep. But I have a son, the Lamb of God, he will come. So when Jesus came into the world, he was God on the other end of the altar responding to the human race through the agent of Abraham. It was God who coaxed us into the altar through Abraham, intending to meet us at that altar. Jesus is the New Testament altar. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. amen. His coming was very physical. His giving, very physical. His death, very physical. His resurrection, put your finger in my hand. Thrust your hand in my side, very physical. His sending and imparting the baptism in the Holy Spirit, very physical on the day of Pentecost. Everything God did was physical. He created this world to be physical. He made you and I to be physical. This is not a prison we live in. We are in these bodies for a reason. God's the one who came up with the idea of a physical world. And let me tell you something. The physical world is not going to be done away with while we float along as spirit beings off in the nether world somewhere. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we will spend eternity here on this planet, renovated by God, made holy where Jesus will rule and reign physically on this planet. So God's not against being physical. In fact, God demands that we serve him with our whole spirit, soul, and body. That table of covenant exchange works like this. Jesus laid himself down on that communion table, saying, here I am, I am the Lamb of God. And so we receive him. But the altar is a place of exchange and transformation. So we receive Jesus as the Lamb of God. And then in the spirit of covenant, we then respond and we say to him, everything about me belongs to you. We can do nothing less because he gave everything to us. 
If he'd only given us 50% of himself, then he could only require 50% of us. You see, the blood covenant dictates that there are like reactions to the actions that, are, that the covenant partners make with one another. So we must come to the altar, and our prayer can be nothing less than my everything I give to you. Now let me tell you, when you go to the altar of God and you say, Lord, I give you my everything. You may be thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I've got this habit. I hope I don't do it again, but I'm probably going to do it again. Don't stop yourself. Give everything. Give your all. Because God knows what your limitations are. He sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, into your life. As long as you keep going to him saying, I surrender. I give you everything. He'll help you mean it. But if you're insincere... If you don't mean it. See, I mean it because I know he's going to help me. I'm confident when I say, Lord, I give you my all because I know the helper is going to help me. I know I'm going to get there. I'm persuaded that nothing's going to separate me from the love of God. I am persuaded that he is going to keep what I commit to him. God's working it out in my life. We need to work that out on the altar. Can you say amen? amen? So when we go to that altar and we say, everything I have I give to you, now we're standing on holy ground. Glory to God. Now the channel of blessing is opened and heaven can begin pouring out. I want to close with this scripture I shared last week. When our earthly altar upon the earth agrees with the heavenly altar, and there is that uniformity and communion, that's when God's grace pours through that altar. The reason many Christians lack the manifestation of God's grace in their life is because they don't go to the altar. They don't have an altar experience. They don't have an altar principle in their, in their faith, in their understanding. But Revelation 8 will help you with that. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, which was given him, and much incense was given him to offer it with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Just stop for a moment. I shared it last week. Uh, bears repeating. You might be scratching out a hillbilly prayer on earth. You think, oh, I'm trying to get this out. I can't seem to put it into words, but I'm trying. I'm exercising my heart. But you're using your tongue. You're speaking to God. It may be anguishing, but you're getting it out before God. As it ascends up, you send it up through that altar. That angel mixes it with that incense, that holy incense, and it makes it beautiful in the ears of your heavenly Father. It, the heavenly altar affects it, impacts it, changes. The altar changes your prayer, not the intent, not the direction, but the, the shortness of it. God is able. His ability is there. And so that incense mixes, and then right after that, listen, 
Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Notice that the altar principle exists so that God can transact business between heaven and earth. The earthquake, the thunder, the lightning, the fire, what is that? It is the divine power of God rearranging things, changing things, moving things around. God is able. And the grace of God is waiting to be an earthquake, to be a fire, hallelujah, in your life. Can you say amen? amen. So here's our altar call this morning. Let's come to the altar of grace. Let's come to the altar of grace. Grace is not for sorry people. Grace is for ready people. You just chew on that a little bit. The readiness to change and move forward is found at the altar. Grace obtained at God's altar is the power to move, not permission to remain. We don't understand grace. In fact, we have reversed our concept of grace. Grace is here to move us, not to let us remain. Sorry people always remain where they are. I have found myself many times apologizing to God. I'm sorry, Lord. I have sinned, and I know I'm doing about as much good as it's the echoes of my mind. Sorry people never change. Ready people change. Where do I find that readiness? You find it at the altar of God. You go to the altar of God, pour your heart out, Lord, help me. I haven't been able to find within my flesh or within my own mind the motivation to deal with this issue, but Father, help me. And I'll tell you, you get serious, you get uh, um, honest and humble before God. The, the readiness, the readiness to move, hallelujah, will come. God will sow it. Can you say amen? <clears throat> so the altar is where you stop being sorry and you become ready. Hallelujah. The altar is where you'll find grace to become what God has called you to be. And so with that, I'm going to close this part of this message and have you stand. I want to encourage you to just simply take this message and think differently about how you pray. Think differently about prayer life. Think differently about our gathering here. I think we need an altar. I think we need a place where the fear of God begins to rise within us. I think we need a place where we can practice approaching, coming, not just singing, not just listening to a message, but doing something, doing something. How many times have you left church, this church, saying, oh, that stirred me up. I felt fire inside. But you left frustrated because you felt the need to do something. 
and it subsided before you got around to figuring out what it is you needed to do. The altar is where you take that stirring. The altar is where you take that moment and act before God. And this needs to come back to the church. This needs to come back. You can't sing down what I'm talking about. We have to come before God. We have to make this altar holy and sacred before the Lord. And so I'd like you, if you would, just maybe a few people join me down here. Just kind of bunch, bunch around here. And let's pray. Let's pray the grace of God, a fresh commitment to have His grace, to act, to reach out. And you don't have to come down. I think the whole, everywhere we sit in this whole place, we need to make an altar. When we walk through those doors, we should be walking into the altar of God.